Hey, Elizabeth Slattery here. Before we get into today's episode, we would be so grateful if you would take a minute to subscribe to DIST on your favorite podcast platform, and then leave us a five-star rating and a review. And go ahead and tell a friend about it, too. I'll wait. Okay, done. Now on to the show. In 1978, amid a sordid history of Native American children being taken from their families and placed in custody of non-Indians, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA. Though passed with good intentions, critics say ICWA actually offers Indian children less protection than non-Indian children, since states are required to try harder to keep Indian families together, even in cases of abuse. And in other cases, it leads to troubling results— Indian children have been taken from happy homes after years with non-Indian foster families and placed across the country with members of a tribe they've never even met. The Supreme Court is considering a case this term challenging the constitutionality of ICWA, but a case nearly a decade ago foreshadowed the constitutional arguments that are now before the court. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. And this week on DIST, we're taking on adoptive couple versus baby girl. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. The Federal Reporter is riddled with unusual case names. Consider the following. Terrible versus Terrible. Batman versus Commissioner. United States versus approximately 64,695 pounds of shark fins. And adoptive couple versus baby girl. Behind that last one is the heartbreaking story of a little girl torn between the foster family that raised her from birth and a father who had relinquished his parental rights before she was even born. The Supreme Court doesn't often hear cases involving family law matters, but what made this case unique was the child's ancestry, which triggered the Indian Child Welfare Act, also known as ICWA. Proponents say ICWA is the gold standard for adoption in foster cases and was necessitated by an ugly history of the government tearing Indian families apart. Critics say that, while well-intentioned, the law subverts the interests of individual Indian children to the interest of Indian tribes, often offering Indian children less protection in custody proceedings compared to non-Indian children who are not subject to the law. Critics also contend that ICWA is unconstitutional because it exceeds Congress's enumerated powers, violates principles of equal protection, and improperly commandeers state actors to do the federal government's bidding. So what is ICWA? And what are the constitutional arguments? We know just the guys to ask. I'm Tim Sandifer, Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Goldwater Institute. I'm Oliver Dunford. I'm an attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. Both Tim and Oliver have litigated cases involving ICWA. Here's Tim explaining the act in basic terms. The Indian Child Welfare Act is a federal law that was passed in 1978 to set federal rules for cases involving foster care, adoption, abuse, neglect of children who are deemed Indian under the law. And here's Oliver. The idea behind it was to stop the previous practice in state courts that um, uh, ripped apart Indian families that gave, uh, in effect, deference to white families that tried to adopt Indian families. Um, And the idea was to stop that practice and also to keep Indian families and Indian tribes intact as much as possible. 
ICWA defines an Indian child as anyone eligible for membership in a federal tribe, not just members of those tribes. People can be Indian children even if they are not tribal members and even if they never become members of tribes. Once a child is an Indian child, that case, that child's case is subject to the Indian Child Welfare Act. So what exactly led Congress to adopt this law? Here's Tim with a brief history. Beginning in the late 19th century, uh, the federal government primarily, but also the states, engaged in a program of purposely trying to remove Native American children from their families and forcibly assimilate them into white society. And this often took the, the form of placing them in boarding schools. And this experience was, was traumatic in many ways. For instance, the children were, were punished for speaking Native languages or practicing Native religions or traditions. Uh, the children were sometimes subjected to abuse, and um, and there are some pretty horrific stories in that vein. So in the 1970s, when there was a, sort of a nationwide movement for reform of federal Indian law in various different ways, one of the uh, efforts undertaken was to try and restrict the power of the states to take children away from Native families. Unfortunately, what often is the case, Congress swung the pendulum way too far in the other direction. And what you ended up with in ICWA is a set of federal rules that actually end up hurting the very children that ICWA was supposed to protect. Critics often point to three provisions as being particularly harmful. First, the active efforts requirement. Second, the placement preferences. And third, the presumptions embedded within the best interest of the child standard. Here's Tim on the active efforts provision. If a non-Indian child is being abused by a family and the state has to rescue that child and place the child in protective custody, the state can uh, terminate the rights of an abusive parent when the state uh, proves that there's clear and convincing evidence of the need to do so. But before it can do that, it's required to engage in what's called reasonable efforts to restore the child to the custody of the birth parents. Now, reasonable efforts mean something like providing remedial services, you know, maybe anger management classes or, you know, alcohol treatment programs, something like that to help the family regain custody and, and get back on their feet. And that makes perfect sense. But there's also a limit on that. Reasonable efforts is not required in the case of so-called aggravated circumstances. And that's things like sexual molestation or drug addiction or circumstances that show that returning the child to the household would only result in further abuse. In those cases, this reasonable efforts thing doesn't apply. Now, that's for non-Indian children. The rule for Indian children is different. For Indian children, ICWA requires active efforts, not reasonable efforts. But more importantly, active efforts is not excused by the existence of aggravating circumstances. That means that even if the household is known to be abusive, the state is required to return the Indian child to that household, even though they know that the child is only going to be harmed again. As Oliver put it, the idea, again, is to keep Indian families together. In effect, however, uh, it makes it harder to um, separate uh, Indian children from abusive parents. Critics also often point to the act's placement preferences. Yeah, ICWA imposes what are called placement preferences for foster care and adoption. And that means that state courts are required to put children either in foster care or in adoption following certain uh, categories of preferences. So the first one is 
uh, you have to place the child with members of the child's family. Well, nobody has any objection to that. But if that's not available, then you have to place an Indian child with members of the tribe, even if they're perfect strangers to the child. And if that's not available, the state is required to place the children with other Indian families. That's the phrase it uses, other Indian families, regardless of tribe, which means that under ICWA, an Inuit child must be placed with a Seminole or a Penobscot or Lakota family instead of with a white, black, Asian, or Hispanic family. Oliver noted that courts can depart from those preferences if a foster or adoptive family can show good cause uh, why the court should depart from those placement preferences. But under regulations adopted by the Obama administration, the standard to show good cause is by clear and convincing evidence, which is a substantial burden. As Tim observed, the preference for other Indian families, regardless of tribe, seems to contradict ICWA's very purpose. Now, the rationale behind ICWA is supposedly to keep tribes together, to preserve tribes as cultural units. But this provision doesn't even accomplish that because it just says Indians with Indians, regardless of tribe, you know, regardless of the difference between these the different tribal cultures and things, it just classifies children into Indian or non-Indian. Then finally, there's the best interest of the child standard. In the case of non-Indian children, the court just decides, uh, family court, juvenile court just decides what is in the best interests of this particular child. All kinds of considerations can be used by the court, closeness to family, the ability of, uh, of the foster family or the biological family to provide for the child, all kinds of things, schooling, education, all these things can be considered, but it's all geared towards that particular child and what is in his or her best interests. But in the case of Indian children? ICWA declares that it is in the best interest of Indian children to stay with Indian families or with Indian tribes. And the problem with this is that it treats all Indian children as fungible. Uh, it doesn't necessarily take into consideration the best interests of that particular Indian child. And so again, ICWA creates these presumptions that benefit Indian tribes or are intended to benefit Indian tribes at the expense, in some cases, of the individual best interests of the child that is the subject of the custody proceeding. The court can consider that, can consider the individual best interests of the child, but it's put up against the presumption because the child is an Indian child that his or her best interest lies with staying with or going with a tribal family. These three provisions can lead to troubling results. The active efforts provision, for example, can mean the state has a more difficult time removing Indian kids from abusive families. Let's take an example of um, the Declan Stewart case from Oklahoma from 2015. This Declan was a five-year-old boy whose mother's boyfriend was beating him and molesting him. He was admitted to an emergency room with severe bruises and, and other indicia of abuse. State child welfare officers in Oklahoma knew that he was being beaten, but thanks to ICWA's active efforts rule, which requires the state to return children to abusive homes, they sent him back to the home where he was beaten to death at the age of five. Tim recounted many similar stories of children being put back into danger simply because they qualify as Indian. Josiah Gishi here in Phoenix was a child whose mother was neglectful and the state knew that he was neglectful. They had repeatedly taken him into temporary foster care to try and protect him. 
But because Zikwa required them to return him to the household, they did. The mother left one day, left him alone in the apartment while she went off to work. When he, she came home, he was dead. Lauren Whiteshield, Anthony Renova, the Shayla H case. Moreover, the placement preferences can lead to situations where Indian children are taken from happy, loving, non-Indian foster homes after years with the family and placed with the tribe instead. Take the Lexi case from 2016. Which involved a six-year-old girl in California whose last full-blood Indian ancestor was her great-great-great-great-grandfather who did not speak a native language, did not practice a native religion, had never visited tribal lands, was qualified as Indian under ICWA and was stripped from the arms of the foster family where she had lived for four of her six years of life and sent to live with non-natives in Oklahoma instead. According to Lexi's foster father, Rusty, when Los Angeles County social workers came to take her away after four years with the family, he, quote, sat them all down on her couch and said, Daddy needs to tell you something. He told the kids, including Lexi, that she was being taken, but, quote, we loved her and we're fighting for her and we'll never stop fighting for her. A video that later went viral shows Rusty handing over a crying Lexi as his wife and three other children stand sobbing in front of the house. So, no, ICWA is no benefit to, to children who are deemed Indian under this law. A few years ago, Oliver represented an Ohio family in an ICWA case. PLF represented a interracial couple from Ohio. They had a large family at the time. And one night, late at night, they got a call and were asked to uh, take in a two-and-a-half-year-old boy who had been taken from his biological parents by the county. His parents struggled with drug abuse, alcoholism, homelessness, and unfortunately, the biological parents' um, problems continued. And so after about a year uh, with the foster family, the child's guardian ad litem moved the court to have the child adopted by this foster family. The biological father was half Indian and his mother was white. The father's tribe intervened in the case. And they sought to place CJ with a family, the uh, tribe's reservation in Arizona. And at the time, CJ, who was, again, about three or four at this point, had never been to the tribe's reservation in Arizona, and he had never met the people with whom he was to be placed. The court ruled that after nearly two years with his foster family, CJ should be transferred to the custody of people he didn't even know across the country in two weeks' time. The appellate court reversed, in part because CJ's mother had objected to the transfer and the district court had ignored her objection. So the case was sent back down to the district court to decide custody of CJ. That's when PLF got involved. Representing CJ's foster parents, we had to show by clear and convincing evidence uh, that there was good reason to depart from ICWA's placement preferences. And so ultimately, we were able to prove that there was good cause to depart from ICWA's placement preferences. The court awarded legal custody of CJ to our clients as foster parents, but that took uh, between the time he CJ was first placed with his foster parents and the time that the court awarded legal custody, it took five and a half years. And throughout that time, uh, both CJ and his foster parents uh, had to worry that at any moment he could be ordered to move to Arizona to live with people he hadn't met not to mention all the time and uh, resources that the foster family had to put in going to court and um, taking this burden on. So it, at the end of the day, it was a good result, but it took five and a half years and imposed a lot of stress and, and worry on our clients. The Supreme Court has only addressed ICWA in two decisions, 
Mississippi Choctaw Indians versus Holyfield in 1989, and Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl in 2013. And it recently heard arguments in another case that will be decided this term. The second of these cases, Adoptive Couple versus Baby Girl, tees up the constitutional issues that are now before the court. In Baby Girl, a South Carolina couple sought to adopt a baby girl named Veronica, whose father was a member of the Cherokee Nation and whose mother was Hispanic. During the mother's pregnancy, the pair broke up. The mother asked the father if he would rather pay child support or relinquish his parental rights, and he responded via text that he chose the latter. The mother later selected a South Carolina family as adoptive parents, both of whom supported her emotionally and financially throughout her pregnancy and were present at Veronica's birth. The next morning, the birth mother signed forms consenting to their adoption. For the duration of the pregnancy and the first four months of Veronica's life, the biological father provided no financial assistance to the birth mother or his child, even though, as the court found, he had the ability to do so, nor did he make any meaningful attempts to assume his responsibility of parenthood. When Veronica was four months old, the adoptive couple served the biological father with notice of the pending adoption. He signed papers stating that he was not contesting the adoption, but later testified that he thought he was relinquishing his rights to the birth mother, not the adoptive couple. He thereafter contacted an attorney and challenged the adoption. Nearly two years later, the wheels of justice turned slowly after all, the South Carolina Supreme Court rejected the adoption because under ICWA, no active efforts had been made to keep the child with her father. And even if he had in fact relinquished his rights, the placement preferences should have been applied and Veronica should have been placed with members of an Indian tribe instead of the adoptive parents. At the age of 27 months, baby Veronica was handed over to her biological father, whom she had never met. The adoptive parents appealed, and a year and a half later, the case reached the U.S. Supreme Court, generating five separate opinions. Justice Alito wrote the majority opinion, joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justices Kennedy, Thomas, and Breyer. The majority sidestepped any constitutional concerns about ICWA, finding instead that the law didn't apply under these circumstances. Here's Justice Alito reading from the bench. This case involves the custody of a young girl who, through her biological father, has some Native American ancestry. Specifically, we are told she is 3256th Cherokee and, as a result, falls within the Federal Indian Child Welfare Act of 1978. Before the child was born, her biological father refused to provide any support for her mother, even though he was able to do so, and he sent the mother a text message giving up his parental rights. The mother arranged for the baby to be adopted, and the biological father initially signed papers stating that he did not object to the adoption. However, he later changed his position and sought custody. The South Carolina Supreme Court held that certain provisions of the Indian Child Welfare Act required the child at the age of 27 months to be taken from the only parents she had ever known and handed over to the biological father. We hold that the federal act does not support this result. A provision of the Indian Child Welfare Act, 25 U.S.C. Section 1912F, bars involuntary termination of a parent's rights in the absence of a heightened showing that serious harm to the Indian child is likely to result from the parent's, quote, continued custody of the child. The key phrase there is continued custody. We hold that this provision does not apply when, as in this case, 
the relevant parent never had custody of the child. Continued custody cannot be terminated if there never was any custody in the first place. Another provision of the same statute, Section 1912D, conditions involuntary termination of parental rights with respect to an Indian child on a showing that remedial efforts have been made to prevent the, quote, breakup of the Indian family, close quote. We hold that this provision is inapplicable when, as in this case, the parent abandoned the Indian child before birth and never had custody of the child. In that situation, no Indian family is broken up. Finally, we clarify that Section 1915A, which provides placement preferences for the adoption of Indian children, does not bar a non-Indian family like adoptive couple from adopting an Indian child when no other eligible candidates have sought to adopt the child. Because Justice Alito determined that ICWA didn't apply in baby Veronica's case, there was no need to address any constitutional arguments against it. But that didn't stop him from at least giving a hint to future litigants about his thoughts on the matter. In the last paragraph of the opinion, Justice Alito wrote, The Indian Child Welfare Act was enacted to help preserve the cultural identity and heritage of Indian tribes. But under the state Supreme Court's reading, the act would put certain vulnerable children at a great disadvantage solely because an ancestor, even a remote one, was an Indian. As the state Supreme Court found, a biological Indian father could abandon his child in utero and refuse any support for the birth mother, perhaps contributing to the mother's decision to put the child up for adoption, and then could play his ICWA trump card at the 11th hour to override the mother's decision and the child's best interests. If this were possible, he continued, many prospective adoptive parents would surely pause before adopting any child who might possibly qualify as an Indian under ICWA. Such an interpretation would raise equal protection concerns. Justice Thomas joined the majority, but wrote separately to flag what he viewed as the most pressing constitutional problem with ICWA, the fact that it exceeds Congress's authority to regulate under the Indian Commerce Clause and violates principles of federalism. While the act asserts that the federal government has plenary power over Indian affairs, the text of the Indian Commerce Clause itself only grants Congress power over commerce with Indian tribes. Moreover, the history of the clause shows that the founders rejected language granting authority over Indian affairs in favor of the current narrow language. Adoption of Indian children, he concluded, does not qualify as commerce with Indian tribes. What's more, ICWA directs state courts to replace their own rules of evidence and procedure with federal rules, implicating federalism concerns. Justice Breyer wrote a very Justice Breyer concurrence, confining the decision to the facts of the case and noting that there might be other slightly different factual situations where ICWA would apply. For example, where fathers had some involvement with the child or paid child support. Turning to the dissents, Justice Sotomayor wrote the primary dissenting opinion, which was joined by Justices Ginsburg, Kagan, and Scalia, although Scalia dissented from one minor point. Sotomayor's dissent spends most of its time disagreeing with the majority's statutory interpretation. She acknowledged that her interpretation of ICWA may sometimes lead to difficult outcomes, but she concluded that that's the nature of strongly respecting biological parents' rights. Without doubt, she wrote, laws protecting biological fathers' parental rights can lead, even outside the context of ICWA, to outcomes that are painful and distressing for both would-be adoptive families who lose a much-wanted child and children who must make a difficult transition. On the other hand, these rules recognize that biological fathers have a valid interest in a relationship with their child and children have a reciprocal interest in knowing their biological parents. Even now, there'd be no easy outcome. 
However difficult it must have been for baby Veronica to leave the adoptive couple's home when she was just over two years old, it will be equally devastating now if, at the age of three and a half, she's again removed from her home and sent to live halfway across the country. Last, Justice Sotomayor addressed the majority opinion's implication that there were equal protection issues lurking within ICWA. Quote, it is difficult to make sense of this suggestion in light of our precedents, which squarely hold that classifications based on Indian tribal membership are not impermissible racial classifications. I see no ground for this court to second-guess the membership requirements of federally recognized Indian tribes, which are independent political entities. I'm particularly averse to doing so when the federal government requires Indian tribes as a prerequisite for official recognition to make descent from a historical Indian tribe a condition of membership. Almost a decade later, the constitutional issues teased in the baby girl case are squarely before the court, with the justices soon to answer whether ICWA violates the Equal Protection Clause, Indian Commerce Clause, or principles of federalism. The case before the court this term is called Brackeen versus Holland. Let's start with the facts. Here's Tim. It's actually two cases, the Brackeen and the Clifford family. The Brackeen's case began when the parents, the native parents of an Indian child, mom was Navajo, dad's Cherokee, decided that they couldn't care for their child and they wanted their child to be adopted. Now, this is an important point because you hear all this rhetoric about how ICWA is supposed to prevent the breakup of an Indian family. This case does not involve the breakup of an Indian family. This case is a voluntary adoption case. The Native parents chose to place their child with the Brackeens, who are a non-Native family that live in Texas. Um, The Clifford family have a similar situation. They sought to care for an Indian child. That child was taken away from them under ICWA. Um, The child's grandmother has written a will now in which she says she wants the Cliffords to regain custody in the event that something happens to her, which would not happen if ICWA applies. So those two families have come together and they're suing. What are the Brackeens and the Clifford's arguments? First, the families make an Indian Commerce Clause argument akin to Justice Thomas's concurrence in Baby Girl. As Tim makes the case. The adoption of children is simply not commerce. Commerce means commercial transactions. Now, there are some people, most prominently a professor named Gregory Blavsky, who has argued that Congress's power with respect to commerce with Indians is far broader than that and should not be read as the same as Congress's power to regulate commerce with foreign nations or among the several states. So the argument here is that when, when it comes to Indians, the word commerce means something different. Now, the, the problem with that is that there's a, a couple of problems. One of that the problems is that the Constitutional Convention, they actually considered a clause that would give Congress power over Indian affairs and expressly rejected that language and chose instead the Commerce Clause, uh, which is a narrower power than existed under the Articles of Confederation. And that difference has to mean something. It, it, it has to be relevant. Also, it's very, very hard to persuade me that the word commerce means something different with respect to the tribes than it does with respect to the states or foreign nations when the commerce clause is a single clause long. And what it says is Congress has power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. It uses the word commerce only one time, and it's the same word commerce that applies to all three of those things. 
So it's very weird to try and argue that the word somehow transforms its meaning when speaking with respect to one of those categories as opposed to the other two. At oral argument, Justice Gorsuch expressed concern that a narrow interpretation of the word commerce would roll back several provisions currently in place directed at Indian tribal members. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this new rule would, would, I think, take a huge bite out of Title 25 of the U.S. Code, which regulates uh, the federal government's relationship with tribal members. There are health care provisions that Congress promises to Native Americans off-reservation. Congress has permitted tribes to exercise power over environmental regulations that have indirect effects off-reservation. That would, that would seem to go, too. We have laws that promise Native Americans access to sacred sites off-reservation and religious liberties off-reservation. That, that would seem to go. And I'm not even sure maybe the liquor sale, those old precedents, but maybe that's commerce. I don't know. But there would be a lot that would be bitten out of Title 25. We'd be busy for the next many years striking things down. If I look through Title 25, there are health care promises to individual Native Americans who live in urban areas. So Let's just all, take that one. First of Go all, on. Your Honor, that strikes me as commerce, at least at least this court is interesting com- commerce. Oh, so we're back to that. Okay, so health care is commerce. It's just this isn't. Whatever first this of all, is. No, child adoptions are not commerce. They simply are not. But health health care is? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. And and environmental laws allowing regulation off reservation effects, that's that's that falls within commerce, but this doesn't? Entirely plausible. It's a function of either interstate or uh, either interstate commerce. How, or how about religious liberties and, and the right to access sites off off reservation? Is that commerce? Not commerce, Your Honor, but that sounds especially if there's a discriminatory component in the courts no. or in the commerce Congress's no, section promising five powers. A, no, you're, no, the law just says you get access to, to places and it preempts state law. Probably. Like I say, I think there's a lot that you're asking us to. We're going to be busy, counsel, if this is the line we're going to draw. Very, very busy. Oliver observed Justice Gorsuch. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. He has an overly expansive view of the Indian Commerce Clause and of Congress's Article One powers in general when it comes to Indian tribes. And I, I don't think that is true when he looks at the Commerce Clause in general or Congress's Article One powers in general. I, I do think he, for whatever reason, has a sees our relationship or the federal government's relationship with Indian tribes as different and, and understandably so. For, but for whatever reason, he is definitely treats these issues somewhat differently when it comes to Indian tribes than in, in the normal case. But, says Tim. It's simply nonsense to say that Congress has unlimited absolute power over anything. Congress does not have that kind of power over anything whatsoever. If Congress truly had plenary power to legislate with regard to tribes, then could Congress forbid people from giving up their tribal membership? Could it make it a crime for an Indian person to leave a reservation or to marry outside of the tribe or to take birth control? That's obviously ludicrous. Justice Alito, he was very focused on this this plenary power thing. He kept asking hypothetical questions to sort of suss out what what plenary really means. And it's pretty clear that he does not think that Congress truly has absolute power in this respect. He said, for example, he asked, could Congress simply make it illegal for any white person to adopt a native child? After all, and he kept saying, if it's truly plenary power, then that's the end of the case, right? 
Alito, a great crafter of hypotheticals, also asked whether, under the federal government's view, Congress could send Indian children to a boarding school or alter the rules of contracts or torts or evidence just because one of the parties is an Indian or give preferences to Indians for COVID vaccinations, things normally prohibited by the Constitution. His point was that the government's argument would lead to absurd results. But even if Congress's power is broad enough to reach adoption and foster decisions, the families argue that ICWA is unconstitutional because it violates the Equal Protection Clause, just as Justice Alito foreshadowed in his majority opinion in the baby girl case. Oliver noted that PLF had pressed that same equal protection argument in its CJ case. We argued that CJ himself was denied equal protection of the law because uh, his best interests were, at least in part, sacrificed for the collective interests of a tribe. And if he had been a non-Indian uh, child, he would, have, he would have benefited from a simple best interest of the child test. But we also argued that our clients were denied equal protection of the law. The foster father was black, his wife is white. And so if they uh, had had uh, Native American ancestry, they would have been a preferred placement under the under ICWA, but because they didn't have any Indian ancestry, they had an additional burden to show. Not It wasn't enough that it was in CJ's best interest to stay with them. They also had to show good cause to depart from ICWA's placement preferences. The counter-argument is that the preferences are not based on race or ancestry, but solely on political sovereignty. The argument was that the federal government's role with respect to Indian tribes is as a political matter, almost in a, in a treaty situation. And so ICWA's idea was to protect Indian tribes. The federal government has a, a trust relationship with tribes, and therefore the placement preference with any Indian, therefore, is based on the federal government's relationships with Indian tribes. But the effect is that any Indian can be a preferred placement, and that turns exclusively on ancestry, which of course means race. As I mentioned before, one of the placement preferences is for uh, any Indian family or any Indian institution. And just as Kavanaugh and Barrett asked a number of questions about this, and the, the question is, how is this not based on race if the law requires you to prefer any Indian, even an Indian not from the child's tribe as a placement. I asked Oliver whether the outcome would be different if Congress changed the scope of ICWA to apply only to tribal members rather than anyone eligible for tribal membership. Would that change the law from a race-based one into a political-based one? He responded, One problem with the eligibility and the membership in general is that sometimes tribes declare a child to be a member sometimes with the biological parents okay and sometimes not necessarily against their wishes but without their knowledge at least in other words it would allow tribes to subject individual children to ICWA without those kids or their parents consent moreover there's still a problem with preferring other indians or members of that tribe solely because of a racial connection if there is a political connection as somebody in ohio has a connection with ohio that's one thing but basing it solely as a, a racial connection, I think still raises equal protection concerns. Last, there's a commandeering argument, which Justice Thomas hinted at in his concurrence in Baby Girl. The state of Texas has also joined the lawsuit saying that ICWA forces the state to do things that it wouldn't otherwise do in these family law matters. 
And that violates the anti-commandeering rule, which is a restriction on Congress's power under the Commerce Clause that says you can that states have to obey federal law but can't be forced to implement federal law. Oliver noted. There are at least four votes that will go against that argument. Meaning Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and presumably Jackson. But that's another interesting question on whether the federal government can, one, say how state courts must uh, act, what, what they must consider, but also what they can do with tribal courts. I think there's no question that the federal government can regulate when it comes to tribal courts. It's a, it's a closer question when it comes to state courts. And yet there's no guarantee the court will actually answer any of these questions because the government argued that the plaintiffs lack standing and the case should be dismissed. So there is an outside possibility that the court could say that there isn't standing. I don't think that's likely. Judging from the oral argument, I think the plaintiff's arguments for standing are very strong here. So I don't think that that's a likely outcome, but it is a possibility. It would be very frustrating because the Supreme Court has only ever heard two ICWA cases before. This law has been on the books for some 45 years, and the Supreme Court has only addressed it in two decisions. The adoptive couple's win in June 2013 wasn't the end of the custody battle over baby Veronica, who by that point was almost four years old. She remained in Oklahoma with her biological father for three more months while he appealed the South Carolina court's finalization of the adoption. He actually landed in jail in Oklahoma and faced extradition to South Carolina for refusing to return Veronica to her adoptive parents. Ultimately, he relented, announcing in a press conference that he was giving up his legal challenge. He wanted Veronica to live a normal life out of the spotlight. The Washington Post reported that when Veronica was reunited with her adoptive parents, she wore pink Velcro sneakers and clutched a teddy bear. In Brackeen v. Holland, the Supreme Court has an opportunity to resolve the constitutional issues in ICWA that led to the protracted legal battle over baby Veronica, a battle that may have been avoided had her race not played a factor in her adoption. Whatever the outcome in Brackeen, we hope the court does justice for the children who so desperately deserve it. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST. Yep. Um, I mean, I grew up in Palm Springs, so I'm used to some winter warmth, but... Yeah. 87 is really warm. <laughs> it's, awful. it's also the dry heat in Palm Springs, you know, the superior heat. Yeah, well, no kidding. It's that's it does make a difference. And as you can see from my, compl- from my complexion, I do not go outside as a result. <laughs> All right. Okay, cool. Okay. Now, Tim, did you are you asleep? <laughs> How long have you been posing like that? That's commitment. <laughs> For a while. <laughs> And those rules are less protective of the child's safety than are the rules that apply under normal state law. I didn't ask for your editorializing just yet. I just said, what is the ICWA? No one commented on my Beyonce baby boy song. What did you want me to say? I don't know. Good one. Ha ha. It was good. Pat on the back. All right, let's get into this. I'm, I'm patting you virtually. I uh, I took out the umbilical cord reference because you said it was gross. <laughs> I mean, he was really in there. <laughs> <laughs>
I know, right? I'm not letting some hojo cut my umbilical cord. I'm weird. Okay. Having issues with the emphasis. Slobble emphasis. Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm like so gravelly today. I don't think you sound gravelly. <clears throat> the counter argument is that like vocal fry. <laughs> is that vocal fry? What's vocal fry? Or is that when you go up? I don't know what vocal fry vocal is. Vocal fry? What is vocal fry? Like, is that like the California Valley Girl accent? Or is fry the, like, uh, that? Whatever. Google it. I'll Google it on my own time. <laughs>